Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and today my guest is Dr. Ken Tyler. Dr. Tyler, welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Tyler, you are a neurologist, a board-certified internist, and right away that caught my attention because I am also a neurologist and board-certified internist, and I think that's kind of a, an animal that, that doesn't exist. It's kind of a rare animal and becoming more and more rare. But, but it's important, I think, in, in this particular interview because I suspect it had something to do with your interest in uh, brain infections, which is really a medical problem. I know when I went to medical school, my favorite classes and the ones I got the highest grades were psychiatry and microbiology. <laughs> I just loved, I, I aced microbiology. I just loved all those parasites and organisms. So what, what's, oh, by the way, I just want to mention, you are professor and chair of neurology at the University of Colorado. Yes. And you're a practicing neurologist with an interest in infections of the brain, right? That's your, yep. that's your thing. And I've heard you speak about uh, we can talk maybe some other time about that, this very straight, acute flaccid paralysis that affects yes. children. Yeah. And uh, so now we have, everybody knows, right, COVID-19, and we're going to talk about the SARS virus. So I, tell me your background and how you got interested in, in viruses. Yeah, I think you did a great job. I, I'm old enough that I came from a tradition where many neurologists actually started in internal medicine for their training and then uh, uh, went into neurology. And many neurology departments were not that far removed from having been divisions of departments of medicine. And in my case, uh, I wasn't sure in the beginning whether I wanted to do infectious disease or neurology. And so it seemed like a nice, uh, uh, you know, a nice uh, training. And I always sort of thought the neurologist felt a little uncomfortable with infections and the infectious disease people felt a little uncomfortable with the nervous system. So it created a nice both clinical niche. And as you alluded to, it's also been a research interest of um, uh, mine as well. And well, I wouldn't share this with my with my chairman, but when I did my first year of neurology after completing internal medicine, I was like, well, I don't know if I'll like neurology or not, but at least I'll be an internist who knows neurology better. <laughs> and uh, of course, uh, things evolved. So um, COVID-19, SARS virus. What is special about this virus? You know, we talked about, oh, it's just the flu. And then everybody realized, no, it's not just the flu, but it is just a little virus. Why, why is this virus wreaking so much havoc? Well, I think, uh, you know, for all viruses, this is a little bit of this game between uh, how many people do you infect and what is the infection that you cause. And so obviously part of the havoc um, comes from the sheer numbers here that, uh, you know, we're literally, I think, uh, um, 
you know, talking worldwide, you know, in, in enormous numbers, the U.S. in enormous um, numbers. So part of it is just the scope of it. And then I think the second part of it is, of course, the nature of the disease, that this is, uh, you know, I think we're already at the point in the U.S. where we're well over 400,000 deaths and things like that. And so um, the second part of it is not only is it infecting a lot of people, both in our own country and the world, but that, you know, sadly, there are a lot of those people um, for which this has been a, a lethal infection and a bigger group for which it's been something that's prompted hospitalization or other things. So I think the havoc is a combination of the uh, how widespread it is and the relatively severe nature of the infection, at least for a subset of the patients. But that's a big subset when you look at the numbers. So I know that, um, well, like the, the polio virus attacks the nervous system, right? Yes. Yeah, of course. And there's, we're going to talk shortly about all the neurologic complications that um, this, uh, I read your paper, by the way, and I thought it organized it nicely, but there's a lot of different ways that this yeah. virus affects the nervous system. But I, I think it's important to, you know, people say neurologic complications. Well, the immediate assumption is that it affects the nervous system directly. And there are viruses that do that, like rabies virus attacks the brain, polio. Does, does the SARS virus attack the brain or are these kind of side effects of, of other uh, damage that it does? Um, the, the right answer is both. So I think in terms of the numbers, you know, many of the complications are a result of the severity of the systemic infection and the indirect effects on the nervous system. But there is evidence that uh, this virus can directly infect the nervous system. We can isolate um, by PCR, viral nucleic acid from brain tissue rarely, from spinal fluid, but in some cases from spinal fluid and can see viral antigen or viral particles by electron microscopy. But I don't wanna mislead your readers, although that happens. I think the majority of your listeners, I should say, the majority uh, you know, of the cases, we don't have evidence for that direct infection. So we think it's either the systemic effects uh, or the indirect effects, including things like uh, inflammation, cytokine uh, production, and other things like that. Right. So um, I guess the, some of our listeners are medical and some aren't, but yeah. I've been very impressed by the this inflammation that the blood vessels can actually get inflamed, and that's how a stroke occurs, for example. With, we've seen young strokes yeah. Uh, with patients with COVID, even who don't seem otherwise. Okay, so there's another question. I went to the <laughs> bank the other day trying to get a mortgage for a house, and we were talking about COVID. I said, I'm surprised you're open. You know, we're sitting in the lobby wearing masks, of course. He goes, oh, yeah, I had COVID a few weeks ago. And I said, well, what happened? He said, oh, I was very tired for about two days, and now I'm okay. And then there are other people in the ICU on a ventilator for a month. So... Why is it that some people seem to just fly through it and other people don't? You know, it's a great, it's a fundamental question, and I'm not sure we know the full answer. We do know that uh, for many of the neurologic complications, 
that of course, the more severely ill patients are more likely to get those. So somebody that's in a hospitalized, in an ICU, ventilated is gonna be at risk for no surprise, encephalopathy, all of those kind of things. We also know that those patients are much more likely to have this sort of disseminated coagulopathy and hyperinflammatory state that is one of the contributors um, to uh, stroke. But there's still pieces we don't understand. And I think many of us kind of think that a component is the host immune response. Mm -hmm. So if you look, especially why do some children get a funny uh, Kawasaki-like uh, inflammatory process that can involve the skin, the heart, the nervous system, and other organs, um, it does seem to be linked to a very robust immune response against the virus. So sometimes the host uh, immune response, as opposed to both being a defense, can be part of the problem. And so I think there probably are host factors like that that we don't fully understand. And maybe the last one I can toss in, because I suspect a lot of your listeners uh, are aware of it, is we're um, trying to understand whether different variants of the virus itself may differ in their ability to cause severe or more severe disease. I think there's very good evidence that some of the emerging variants are more transmissible and more contagious. And so your readers may have heard about things they refer to or your listeners uh, as the Brazil virus or the South African virus um, and uh, or the UK virus, which are three of the variants that uh, have gotten a lot of attention. It seems clear they're more transmissible and we're really trying to understand, are they also associated with an increased likelihood of more disease? So usually the pieces are, is there something about the virus and is there something about the host? And that's what mm. people are trying to parse out. So you can imagine in a science fiction Star Trek future, there would be a blood test that they could do on on me and they could say, well, Dr. Wilder, if you get the virus, you're going to die. Or if you get the virus, you're just going to fly through it based on my own immune system, yeah. that there'll be some matching uh, that will be possible when we understand better, you know, why certain people do well and why others don't. So since we're talking about infection, I, I think we just have to mention the vaccine. Sure. Um, and I'm going to stick my neck out here. I think the vaccine is a great invention from everything I've read. And I put my money where my mouth is. I was very reluctant to get it. It's like, oh, I don't want something they made in a rush. I went and got it. I was first in line. And I got the shot, it hurt a little bit, and I was fine. And then I went for my second shot. And I was like, oh, no, now now I'm going to get it. And I got the second shot, and I was fine. And uh, I wrote an article about it. It's gotten 29,000 shares. Because wow. not only did I get the shot and fly through it, I feel protected. I have a 95% chance that I'm not going to get sick, and I'm not going to bring it home to my loved ones at home, which was my big worry going to the hospital every day. And now I don't have to worry about that. Boy, I feel better. So anybody watching this, if you have an opportunity, get the vaccine and it doesn't matter. Would you agree with me on this? Doesn't matter which one, whichever one you can get, 
just get it. You know, a year from now, maybe you can get a better one, but get the <laughs> one now so that you don't get sick and die. So like you, I practice what I preach. Uh, I also got the Pfizer uh, uh, vaccine, and I think my uh, side effects were almost identical to yours. A little bit of a sore left arm uh, after shot one, and maybe a little bit sore after shot two, uh, but no uh, systemic effects. And uh, many of, of course, our residents and fellows and younger trainees, um, when I've talked to them, had uh, a more robust set of uh, side effects, maybe some fatigue or fever or aches or things. There's not a one of them who uh, would uh, second guess their decision. Uh, this seemed like a very small price to pay and more so maybe when you are people like you or myself who've seen you know, what this can do. Uh, I would take any of the things they've described over being intubated in an ICU. That's for a darn sure. Yes, good. All right, well, I'm glad we got that uh, public service uh, message yes. out there. So what about the future? What's going to happen? Is this going to be, uh, oh, you know, like the flu, a seasonal thing that's just going to go on forever? Is it just going to vanish? You know, is it something we're going to get immunized for every year? They're going to make a new concoction and it'll, you know, hospitals say, okay, get your flu shot, get your COVID shot. Is that, how is this going to play out, you know, next year? Um, in responding to that, let me jump back to some of the points you made too about your own vaccine and about vaccines. Um, the good news is we already in the U.S. have the uh, two approved mRNA vaccines, the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, that seem to be very safe and very effective in the populations they were tested against, including those across racial and age groups and other things. Um, I think there's been maybe a little bit too much attention on the fact that some of the next group of vaccines that we expect will be uh, approved shortly, probably led by the Johnson & Johnson um, vaccine, are, quote, less effective. And I think it's important for your readers, and uh, readers, I keep on doing that, listeners, uh, to uh, you know, to understand that these were not head-on-head -head comparisons. And ah. so some of the later vaccines, of course, were tested against the types of viruses that were circulating at the time they were tested. It wasn't quite like a, you know, a, a race where everybody lined up at the same time in the mm. same stadium and had that race. Um, I also think it's very important for your listeners to understand that uh, most of those efficacy numbers that uh, you see bandied about were just the reduction in symptomatic cases of COVID. But if you really look at what we would mostly care about, are you going to die? Are you going to get seriously ill, meaning require hospitalization and intubation? Um, most of these vaccines were even more effective than those efficacy numbers. So again, I want to stress how good these were. And I agree with your point. My wife has not yet been vaccinated, um, only because she doesn't yet fall into one of our categories uh, in Colorado by age.
age where that will uh, happen. And if she asks me what she has, I have told her just what you said. Whichever vaccine you can get first is the one I want you to, uh, to have. Um, and I think we're already seeing both in the US, maybe knock on wood a little bit, and in countries like Israel, where they've been very effective in rolling out the vaccine, some beginning early bending of the curves that I think may very well be due to that. And of course, the combination of the physical distancing, hand washing, you know, mask wearing, all of those things. I, I wanna to touch on one more topic before we run out of time, and, and this is really for our medical audience, and that is, has, has the management of these patients actually, you know, there's been anecdotal reports, we're getting better at treating these patients. I don't know if that's true or not. Do you have a, a feeling for that? Is there anything we're doing now that we weren't doing before, or we've stopped doing that we were doing before that's actually helping? Um. You know, I think in, like in many areas of medicine, uh, practice has a, a positive effect. So when the first patients rolled in, no one really had much of an experience beyond, of course, the generic, I know how to take care of ICU patients or things like that. And now, of course, it, in almost every area of the country, there is a big depth and breadth of exposure to this and experience. And I think some of the practices, including when to use a ventilator, how to position a patient, um, have made a difference. Um, we haven't seen great studies that sort of track what was our, you know, uh, uh, incidence of mortality or other things. But I do think the comfort level is greater. It's become a little more automatic and rote how to treat these patients. And uh, I think if we did have the data, it would show an improvement. I, I think there's some interesting therapeutics too that we didn't have at the beginning. Uh, I don't think any of them have hit it out of the park, uh, but I think, you know, remdesivir and in some situations, although the data has been a little mixed, um, convalescent plasma or monoclonal antibody treatments have altered um, things. And we know some things that probably don't work um, like chloroquine and other things that were originally touted, but we now have a, a bigger experience. So um, I think the therapeutics are better but the answer is you don't want to get this. So the uh, hope is really, I think, in the vaccine. And the hope also is that people will responsibly do the simple and easy things that will prevent transmission. I was a little nervous, Andy, when you said that you don't want to bring it home and that you felt good about your vaccine, because I need to tell you that um, you know, again, the data that the vaccines reduce transmission or prevent you from carrying the virus is still in an early stage. There is some data from some of the vaccines suggesting that's true, but just because you're vaccinated shouldn't mean that you shouldn't follow sensible precautions uh, um, because we don't quite know if there are others in your bubble or your circle who haven't been vaccinated, um, that you couldn't still carry virus or transmit virus. 
Oh, I agree. And uh, we're not wearing masks uh, for this video, but I can assure you that <laughs> when I'm when I'm uh, on the hospital grounds, I've got a mask and I've got a shield and I've got sanitizer in my pocket. And it's very my, rare. Uh, my mask here ready from walking in and my uh, screening a badge to enter the, our facilities here. Yes, you know, I promote all of those things. Absolutely. They do make a difference. In fact, here in Tennessee, uh, where I am, there's been a lot of variable response, you know, from the powers that be. And somebody actually did a, a study and they showed that the communities where there was a mask mandate, that the fatality rate was half of the neighboring community that did not have a mask mandate. So masks are not perfect, but, uh, you know, if you're going to be one of the half, you want to be one of the half, you know, that that's on the good half, not, not the bad half. I, I look at it as a sort of a simple altruistic thing, right? That it, the burden of wearing a mask is very modest, especially in uh, indoor situations or crowded situations or where you're exposed to others. And if there's a chance that that will reduce my spreading the virus to some susceptible individual, um, that's an easy do from my perspective. And uh, even non-altruistically, if it reduces your risk, uh, especially for those of you that haven't uh, gotten the vaccine yet, then you're doing it both altruistically and for your own benefit. So uh, seems to me a simple thing uh, that can really uh, have a great impact. Dr. Tyler, this has been a wonderful discussion. Is there anything that I, I left out or you wanted to add? Uh, no, just to encourage your readers that I do and your listeners that uh, I do think there is a light at the end of this tunnel that I think uh, the vaccines are heading out. So don't give up in the home stretch. Uh, and it remains to be seen, I think, whether you asked about will this stay with us, will we need vaccines or boosters in the future? And I think we don't yet know that. The virus is obviously evolving, and I suspect there will be a need to remain vigilant. Uh, uh, and whether that's with mask wearing and some social distancing or new and advanced or updated vaccines remains to be determined. Now, that your paper that I mentioned, uh, where where can uh, readers find that? Which really um, goes into it's in the annals. Igor Kralnik, uh, uh, who's another leader in the field at Northwestern, and I wrote this. It was in the annals of neurology, and it's not behind a paywall or anything. All the COVID uh, papers of the annals of neurology are freely uh, available, so uh, you should be able to Google. Uh, 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 my name and Annals of Neurology or my name and COVID and find it and, and uh, get the paper and download it if you want to. Great. Well, thank, thank you very much. This is, uh, I want to thank you for being on The Art of Medicine. I think we've talked about The Art of Medicine I hope uh, so. <laughs> in relationship to COVID, and it's, it's been a, really, uh, a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's been fun, and good luck with your uh, series, uh, and keep it up. Thank <laughs> you.